As I thought about the theme of this weekend, it occurred to me that there is a lot of confusion in our culture and even among Christians about church. Recently, a group of pastors who lead very large and famous churches gathered together and they were talking shop and talking about ministry and in the midst of that gathering, somebody piped up and said, well, so what exactly is church? Silence. Crickets. (laughs) No one had given much thought to that. There were lots of ideas about how to grow a church and how to lead a church and what a church's role in the community ought to be. But when it came to the question of, well, what exactly is a church? There was just awkward silence. I think we all understand that we live in a culture that is very impressed these days by innovation and creativity. And so in our day, there are now a number of new, creative, innovative expressions of church that have popped up all over the landscape. There are now multi-site churches, satellite churches, branch campuses, on-site video venues, organic house churches, even internet churches. And these are all very cool and very innovative. But their appearance begs the question, hmm, what exactly is a church? What constitutes a church in the mind of the head of the church, Jesus Christ? For example, if a guy gets up on a Sunday morning, grabs a cup of coffee and a Pop-Tart, goes and sits down in his Lazy Boy, gets his laptop out, logs onto the internet, goes to an on-site church website and watches a worship service online, is he experiencing church? What if he moves the cursor and checks the box marked member? Does that make him a member of a New Testament church? It's a very interesting and important question. On this weekend, when we as a church are commissioning new church planners to go and start new churches, and in a few moments ordaining two new elders in this church, I felt impressed to look again at the scriptures that describe church, and more specifically, church leadership. And I do believe this should be important to all of us. Obviously, it's important to me. I'm a pastor of a church. It's certainly important for our elders and our staff to understand the nature of a biblical church. Some of you serve in spiritual leadership roles in this church, and so it should be important for you as well. And many of you are members or ministry partners of this church or one of these church plants. You too need to have at least a basic grasp of this. We now have a number of young adults, this is so cool, in our church who feel and sense the calling of God to give their lives in vocational Christian ministry. And if you are one of those, then knowing what you believe about church is critical to your future as well. So let's ask this morning, what is a church and how is a church to be led? And so I want to attempt to answer that, but I don't want to start there. I prefer not to start with church. I think when people start with church, that's how weird stuff ends up happening. Let's start not there, but let's start with Jesus. Let's begin with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I so appreciated Jared's message to us last weekend. It was like fuel to my soul. Was it to you? Just hearing about the excellencies of Jesus Christ, the glories of the Son of God. Again and again, and again the Bible lets us know that, that the plan of the ages is that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit 
are actively working together to bring everything in all of creation under the gracious rule of Jesus Christ, the Son, King Jesus. All of us need to understand that everything is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Everything is about Jesus. We need to understand that. We need to guide our children so that they understand that Jesus is the centerpiece of all of creation. It's all about Jesus Christ. Just as the sun is at the center of our solar system and everything else around, revolves around the sun, the S-U-N sun, so in the universe at large, everything revolves around the sun, the son of God. And in your own personal, private universe, until the Son of God takes His rightful place at the center, your life will always be out of kilter, out of whack, out of balance. Because He is the center of everything, of everything. So in our our attempt to understand the church of Jesus, let's start by talking about what the Bible reveals to us about Jesus and His mission on the earth. There's a study guide in your worship folder that has some notes on it and some white space where you can take some notes. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus came. He came as the God-man, didn't he? He put skin on. He slipped into a garment of flesh in order to come not as he was, but as we are. He added humanity to his deity, and he lived among us. And it tells us that he came as a missionary. He came from heaven to earth as the missionary Messiah. Over and over again, while he was here, Jesus said, The Father sent me. The Father sent me. 39 times in the book of John alone, The Father sent me. I'm on a mission from God. I'm a missionary. And so commissioned by the Father, the God-man, Jesus Christ, crossed cultural barriers that we could not even imagine at all in order to come and to be our good news, our gospel. A missionary. He came. He lived a perfect life, kept the law in every respect, and then he died. Jesus died. He completely fulfilled his mission on earth, ironically, by laying down his life, and then he took it up again, as he promised. He purchased redemption for his people by living the life we could never live, and then dying the death we deserve to die. And then rising from the dead, demonstrating his authority over sin, death, and Satan. And then he said, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He did all of that. But that was not all that he did. It's part of the plan. Through his redemptive work, Jesus Christ was also calling to himself a people, wasn't he? A people, a community a new community of the redeemed. And he inaugurated that new community by calling 12 men to himself, whom we call what? The disciples. Yeah, and he lived among them. He lived with them. He loved them. He revealed God to them and God's plan. Then he died for them. Then as the risen Christ, a few days later, he restored them after their doubt and failure had caused them to shrink back. He met them on the beach. He cooked breakfast for them and he restored them. Beautiful, beautiful picture. And he looked at them and said, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The missionary from heaven commissioned 
missionaries to continue his missionary work here on the earth. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of grace. But just as he was about to leave and ascend back to the Father, he told them to wait. He said, don't, don't start yet. There's, you need something that you don't have. Wait. Wait until you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus himself, at his baptism, the Spirit came upon him and empowered him to proclaim the gospel, the good news. So he said to his disciples, this little band of followers, wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll be empowered to do the work I've called you to. And so we see that's the empowering of the Holy Spirit that enables the church, the community of the redeemed, to continue to carry out Jesus' mission in the world. Do you understand this? Are you with me on this? The Bible goes on to describe Jesus as the head of this new church, this community. It is called the church. The Greek word is ekklesia, the ekklesia of God. The word means gathering or assembly. The New Testament describes Jesus as the apostle who planted his church, the leader who is building his church, and the chief shepherd or senior pastor who oversees his church. Sometimes people ask me, who's the senior pastor here at New Life? And I, in recent years, I always say Jesus Christ. That's what chief shepherd means. This is not some incidental point. This is critical to understand. The church belongs to Jesus. He purchased it with his own blood. It's his. Because of this, it's vital that a church love Jesus Christ, obey Jesus, imitate Jesus, focus on Jesus, keep Jesus at the center of church life. Follow Jesus. Unfortunately, in their journey, some churches lose this focus and in essence become disconnected from their head, Jesus, which leads to all kinds of problems just like it would if your body got severed from your head. It would lead to all kinds of problems. Now, after Jesus ascended back into heaven and sat down because his work of redemption was completed, that little band of followers were indeed empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, just like Jesus had promised. Supernatural signs were given to them. Amazing, mind-boggling things were happening. Crowds were attracted by that. And Peter, Peter, that fisherman, that rough, gruff fisherman, turned disciple, turned follower of Jesus, turned denier of Jesus, restored, became a bold, spirit-empowered preacher that day. And he stood up and raised his voice and he preached the gospel to the crowd. And the Holy Spirit granted conversion to how many people that day? 3,000 brand new baby believers in Christ. And the church was born. It was birth, the first expression of Christ's church. You read through the book of Acts and it tells the story of how this newborn church began to live together in gospel community while at the same time proclaiming Jesus' gospel message. They began to live that way right there in Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified just days before. And then through the sending out of missionaries and the planting of new churches, the word of God expanded throughout all that region and then into Asia and into Europe. Finally made its way to our shores, thank God. And as a result, we are blessed to know the gospel. And so the book of Acts shows us the church continuing Jesus' mission of proclaiming and demonstrating a gospel-saturated life. 
It says, as they did this, God added to the church daily those who were being saved, calling people from every tribe, every tongue, every language to himself through his church, forming a people. I think Peter calls us a peculiar people. Some of us are more peculiar than others. But we're all a little bit odd. That's okay. A band of aliens and exiles in this world who live for the glory of God. That's always been God's mission on the earth, and we are called to join in that mission as his church. In the book of Acts, and then in Paul's letters to all of these newly formed churches that were popping up all over the landscape, we see some descriptions of church. Throughout the ages, scholars have tried to pull all those descriptions together and form a single definition of a church. What is, what is a church? How do you define a church? There's a definition that I prefer that's been drawn from the book of Acts, and it's been articulated most recently by a pastor named Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears in a book they wrote called Vintage Church. I think I've written it out for you there on your outline. What is a church? From what we see in the New Testament, can we, can we create a composite that will give us a definition of a biblical church? This, this one is, is a good one, I believe. What is a church? The local church is a community of regenerated believers, born-again people, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments, or I prefer the term ordinances, of baptism and communion. They are unified by the Spirit, disciplined for holiness, holiness, and they scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That should probably be on the test. <laughs> I think that pretty much captures the essence of what a biblical church is. Now, obviously, entire sermons could be preached on each one of these elements of churchhood. I will spare you that today. That's not my purpose. It's rich, though. I do want to spend, however, a few moments taking some time to talk about one important element that we see in that definition, organized under qualified leadership. Do you see that? A biblical church, in obedience to Scripture, organizes under qualified leadership. I'm just curious. I've asked this the last two celebrations. How many of you in your church experience in your life have been in churches that had conflicts, problems, issues that seem to arise because of Something had gone awry in leadership. Can I see your hands? Yeah, that's like way too many hands, you know? <laughs> this is so common. And the churches I grew up in, the three churches that my family took us to as I was growing up, all of them imploded because of leadership problems and issues. And so as I talk about this today, it, it comes from the scriptures, but it also comes a place of hurt and disappointment in my own heart from what I saw in churches growing up, and many, perhaps most of you as well. It's so important that churches are organized well under qualified leadership. We see this in the book of Acts, in the life of this infant church, the early chapters, where 
The original disciples called the apostles functioned in a leadership role in that first church in Jerusalem. They taught the word of God authoritatively. They exercised church discipline. They solved problems that arose in the congregation. They clarified doctrinal questions. They resolved, resolved disputes about what Christians should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't believe. They also commissioned new spiritual leaders. And some of those leaders were sent out and went north to a town called Antioch and planted a new gospel-centered church there. Later in the book of Acts, we see Paul being commissioned by that church, sent out, prayed over and sent out by that church in Antioch and sent out with a team to go to other regions and proclaim the gospel. And so he did. As people in those towns heard the gospel and Some believed Paul would then gather these new believers into churches, ecclesias. Sometimes he himself would stay for a while and he would teach the people. And then after a season, he would appoint men called elders to oversee and direct the affairs of each new church. In other cases, he would leave one of his teammates there to teach the people while he would move on to another region. And later he would write them back and instruct them that they should appoint elders in the church. Notice a couple of key scripture texts describing this. Acts 14.23 says, When they had appointed elders, it's a key phrase, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, notice elders is plural, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1.5 Paul, writing to a young pastor, says, This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. And again, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So when you read the New Testament, it becomes apparent that it's the Lord's plan and pattern that each of his local churches, like this one, be overseen by a team of men that he calls elders. Sometimes these men are also called overseers, like in Acts 20.28, where Paul is talking. He called the elders of the church of Ephesus to meet him on the beach there, and he talked with them. In Acts 20.28, he said to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? Overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Love that statement. Jesus is vested in his church. He shed his blood for her. In Philippians 1, we see this in the opening welcome and greeting from Paul to the church at Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's our conviction, it's my conviction, it's our conviction as leadership, and it's shared by most Bible scholars, that the terms elder and overseer are used interchangeably in Scripture. They're speaking of the same office in the church, the same person holding that office. Elder, obviously, refers to a person's spiritual maturity, and overseer gives us insight into the function of directing or managing or overseeing the church. Maybe when you think about church leaders, you think, well, what about the term pastor? And I love that term, don't you? Pastor. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the term pastor is not primarily a title or a position, but it's a verb. 
pastor the flock of God. It's a, it means to shepherd. It's a shepherding term. Pastor equals shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. Almost every occurrence in the New Testament, it's a verb. Not a noun, not a title. It is used in Ephesians 4.11. It's combined with the word for teacher to describe certain gifted men who are given to the church to equip and edify the church. They're called pastor teachers. Well, all elders are certainly called to pastor or shepherd or care for the flock of God. But not everybody with pastoring gifts is called or qualified or capable of serving in the office of an elder. So, technically, scripturally speaking, calling somebody a pastor is really just recognizing that they've been given gifts to lead and shepherd and feed and protect God's flock. Giving someone the title of elder is different. It recognizes God's calling on them to serve in an office of spiritual oversight in the church. Now, Notice, as we read those scriptures, that the reference to elders is always in the plural. Appoint elders, plural, in every town. Appoint elders in every church, it says. That indicates that the Lord wants his churches to be overseen by a team of elders, not just one. And there are many good reasons for this. Many. Think about it. Just the the, the privilege of being able to share the load of oversight Think about accountability that can take place within a team of elders. Think about humility. Humility so that one person doesn't get all puffed up and prideful and elevated and lifted up about how important he is and how necessary he is to the life of the church. With a team of elders, it brings humility and it brings protection to the church and to the elders. The Bible teaches what's sometimes called a plurality of elders, a team of elders leading a church. And the Bible wisely does not specify how many, since Jesus knew there would be churches of many sizes. And so I've heard of churches with as many as 46 elders and as few as three and everything in between. Now, in the Philippians passage, you also saw a second office in the church. Do you remember that? Paul writing to the overseers and the deacons. The deacons. Deacons in the New Testament were basically assistants to the elders. They were appointed as needed by the elders to serve the church by carrying out administrative tasks or even spiritual tasks deemed necessary for the overall health of the church and to free up the elders to stay focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, in the early life of the church, not all the churches had deacons, but they did all have elders. Now, let's consider this. Who can serve as an elder? Just anybody? There are clear scriptural scriptural qualifications for elders. There is a bar that's been set by the head of the church, Jesus, for elders. And I want us to read through these together. There's a couple of key texts on this, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You say, who can serve as an elder? Those that meet these qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, 1. Paul writing to a pastor there, Timothy, wrote this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's elder, same thing, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing. Therefore, an overseer must be. So here it comes. (laughs) 
Here's the qualifications, the requirements, the conditions. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's interesting. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. You don't want your elders, you know, stumbling into church on Sunday morning with a hangover from getting smashed the night before. Not violent, you know, duking it out with members in the lobby. That's not good. But gentle, not quarrelsome. That means, you know, looking for a fight all the time. Not a lover of money. It's not why he's in it. Listen to this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Wow. For someone who does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, a new Christian, where he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Don't lay hands, it says, on a new Christian and put them into the role of elder. They might get all proud about it. That won't be good. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And now we talk about his reputation with people in the community so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Titus chapter 1 reiterates a lot of these same things. Paul wrote to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward... That means God has trusted him with a measure of authority and responsibility. Must be above reproach. This is starting to sound familiar, isn't it? He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's to be able to teach and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, when I read that, I I think, well, that's really a profile of a godly man, isn't it? It's a profile of a godly man. In that sense, it's really something for all the men in the church to aspire to, to strive towards. I believe the Lord of the church wants there to be models of godliness in church leadership to serve as examples to the congregation, especially in our day and age as so many young boys are raised in families now without a dad in the home, without that example in the home. And, you know, have no picture from childhood of what, what a man, what a godly man looks like. I think it's the Lord's intent that there be in the church godly men who serve as examples and role models for children. Say, okay, that, that, now I have a picture of what a godly man looks like. Notice several things that I picked up on from these scriptures. Elders, number one, are to be men. Elders are to be men be hard to be a husband of one wife and not be a man. Um, This is consistent with God's pattern for ultimate final human leadership in the church as in the home. We've done whole studies on this and our elders have published a position paper on this if you want to research it further. But we're convinced here that God calls men to serve in this, this leadership role. Second, I I note that elders must be qualified and the bar is high. 
All Christian guys should strive towards these qualities, but not every Christian man meets the standards of character and values and reputation and family leadership and spiritual maturity that Jesus desires for his elders. Obviously, this means that churches must put into place some kind of assessment process, some kind of evaluation process to evaluate the men who feel a desire in their hearts to serve in this role, men who appear to be godly and desire to serve. Their fitness to serve has to be ascertained. And then I note that elders, generally speaking, are appointed by other elders. That's the general guideline of the New Testament. Elders are appointed by elders. Here at New Life, we believe it's also sound practice to seek confirmation from the congregation of people that those elders will be serving. And that's what we just did a few weeks ago when we confirmed the two new elders that we'll be recognizing in a couple of minutes here. All right. I got my landing gear down. I'm coming in for a landing here, okay? Stay with me. A couple more things. What do elders do? Do they just walk around the church and look elderly? You know, it says they're overseers. Do they just walk around and oversee things? Yes, looks good. What are the functions, biblical functions, duties, responsibilities of elders? Let's look at a couple of key texts in the scriptures that address this. First Peter 5, written by Peter. Again, that fisherman turned disciple turned denier of Christ, restored, turned apostle, turned elder. He was an elder in his church. 1 Peter 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Here it is, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's an important word. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There are the two broad, overarching functions of elders, shepherd and oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. Have you ever experienced that kind of leadership? Heavy-handed, top-down, authoritarian, crushing kind of leadership, domineering. Peter says, "Not, don't serve with that manner as an elder, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the senior pastor, he, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's a special promised reward to those who serve well in this role. Acts 20.28 records the words of Paul speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus on the beach, beach meeting at Miletus. Here's what he said. Elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And so here we see this protecting, do you see it? This guarding, protecting function of elders. Keep 
my sheep safe and protected from false teaching and false teachers. That's what Jesus is saying. The elders are charged with that. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well, oh, there's a function, let the elders who rule well. So there's leadership, there's direction here. Let them be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. (laughs) He's drawing some similarities between elders and oxen. There are some similarities sometimes. And the laborer, it says, deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, so he's talking about elders who fall into sin and are not repentant, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So that's serious stuff. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. What he's saying is give yourself time to observe a potential elder to observe their life and ministry over a period of time. Don't be hasty, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So we see in the New Testament these two overarching responsibilities for local church elders, shepherding the flock and exercising oversight or leadership. The team of elders in every church is to oversee or manage the affairs of the church under the leadership of Jesus Christ, the head, They're also to provide shepherding for the sheep, which involves leading and feeding and protecting. Now, on your outline, is there a list of uh, specific functions for elders beyond that? So these are are specific duties or responsibilities under that broad header of shepherding and oversight, okay? So here they are, providing direction for the church, teaching biblical truth, modeling Christ-like behavior, preserving sound doctrine, Disciplining rebellious believers, overseeing the financial matters of the church, and praying for those who are ill, praying for the sick. I've given you a lot. (laughs) Let me try to summarize it all in a couple of paragraphs here just to kind of put all this together. Listen, Jesus Christ, the head of his church, has chosen in this age to continue his spirit-empowered mission on the earth through his redeemed people who he gathers together in a variety of gospel communities that he calls churches, local churches. Each of these churches is to be shepherded and overseen by a team of godly, mature, spiritual men, often called elders or overseers. These are men who have been called by the Lord himself, who possess a deep desire to serve in this role and are qualified to do so, who are then recognized as such and appointed by existing elders. These men should possess teaching gifts. They should have experience, be free from verifiable accusations, be developing Christ-like character and spiritual maturity, and manage their families well. Once appointed as elders, they are delegated a measure of spiritual authority from Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church. And they are charged with the responsibility of serving Christ's church by overseeing its affairs, providing spiritual direction, and shepherding its members. And they should do this humbly, willingly, eagerly, and with a pure heart, 
knowing that they too are under authority of the chief shepherd. Jesus will one day rightly evaluate their service to him and reward them appropriately. They are to lead first and foremost by example, and they serve not for their own glory and fame, but for for the glory and fame of the one who purchased the church for himself with his own blood. Does that make sense? I don't know if you've ever heard a talk before on church leadership, but it's important for us to understand these things. So how should the people of God respond to this elder team that is put in place in the church? Well, here's what the scriptures call for from you. So listen carefully. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders. Remember them. Those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 17, same chapter, Hebrews 13, says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, today, this weekend marks a significant milestone in this church, New Life Church, not only because... We're commissioning two new church plants this weekend, but also because we are ordaining two new elders, adding them to our current team of five, which makes now seven elders. These two men, Jay Firebaugh and Josh Boggs, have been observed here for a number of years. Both of them have served in leadership roles in spiritual ministry for many, many years here at New Life, as well as In previous churches, it was important to us to note that in his mercy, the Lord has humbled both of these men through the experiences of their lives. One of my own personal axioms or mottos is, don't trust anyone who hasn't had the snot beat out of them yet. It's true. And uh, God has orchestrated circumstances to accomplish that humbling work in the lives of each of these two men. And we are grateful to God for his mercy in doing that. Humility is something we value highly here. It characterized our Lord. You need to know that neither of these men sought this role for themselves. They likely would have been quite content serving in the roles they've been serving in. But as God would have it, these men have been noticed prayed over, approached, nominated, and then examined by our current team of elders with respect to the qualifications that we just read a few moments ago. Having done that, we recommended them to you. And a few weeks ago, you as a congregation confirmed their fitness to serve as elders here in a congregational vote. Overwhelmingly so. Now, you should know that our elder team here of seven is composed of half staff elders and half what we're often termed lay elders. And you're thinking, but there's seven. <laughs> Who's the half and half person? Um, well, that Bill Robbins has the, uh, the privilege of serving in that half and half role. He uh, actually serves part-time on our staff as director of marriage ministries, and he's also a lay person in this church, so that's how we get that half and half. 
You need to know that on our elder team, there is a beautiful God-given spirit of humility and cooperation that is just a pleasure to be a part of. And there's also a fierce commitment to upholding the word of God and keeping the gospel central in this church body. And I love that also. We are grateful to the Lord for adding these two men to the overseeing team of elders in this church. And so right now I want to ask Jay Firebaugh and Josh Boggs to make their way up to the front here. There is a biblical pattern in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, for how elders are to be recognized and ordained and commissioned into their new role, and it's with the laying on of hands and prayer by current elders. So we're going to do that in just a moment. But um, these are some wonderful men here that God has raised up in our congregation. You guys know Pastor Jay. He's been with us now for four years, came to us from Houston, Texas, which I can understand why someone would come here from Houston, Texas. Uh, Jay is our director of small group ministries. Uh, Prior to that, he was a senior pastor for many years in Houston. Prior to that, he was a small groups pastor and a youth pastor. So he's lived like three lifetimes already. (laughs) But uh, he's a wonderful man of God, and his family is a huge blessing to all who know them. Janet and Joel and Joanna, and we are just blessed to uh, have God have brought them to us several years ago. Uh, Josh Boggs is uh, a great brother, married to Cindy, his better half, has uh, several young children. Josh has served as our director of men's ministries for the last several years here. We've been watching him, watching, observing his life. We're seeing the gospel of Christ rooted firmly in Josh's heart. And uh, prior to that, he has served in other leadership roles for a number of years in previous churches. And uh, we love Josh. We're so privileged that God has saw fit to add him to our elder team as well. So I'm going to give you guys a charge in just a moment from the scriptures. And right now I'm going to ask our current elders to come. And uh, consistent with the pattern of scripture to come, stand behind these uh, men and lay your hands on them. And in just a moment, we're going to join together in a word of prayer. And as they do that, I want to give a charge to you, Jay and Josh, and a reminder to the rest of us who serve as elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's a wonderful promise. So church, right now, would you join us up here on the stage and just bowing your heads and let's take these next few moments and pray for God's empowering, his anointing, upon these men as they begin serving in this new role as elders on our team here at New Life. And then in just a moment, I'll pray for all of us, okay? Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, that we direct our prayers right now. We marvel at your saving work in calling people to yourself through your grace. Working in their lives to develop character and maturity and a love for you and your gospel and a love for people. We're amazed and we marvel at your work in calling a man into this role. Lord, we feel humbled by it. We know that we don't deserve it. But we thank you for it. We thank you for these men. We thank you for Jay and for Josh and your work in their lives, developing them, cultivating your character in them, calling them. Lord, they, they are not perfect. We do not claim that. We're so grateful that your requirements aren't, isn't perfection or there would be no elders. But Lord, these men have been humbled by you. And Lord, through adversity, difficult circumstances. You have brought a sweetness of humility into their souls, Lord, that is evident. We thank you for the gifts that you have given them to serve your people here at New Life Church. I pray that the the people of New Life, the flock of God here, would understand and appreciate and honor these men and hold them in high regard and imitate their faith and submit to their spiritual authority. Keep them and us ever humble, Lord. May we not be puffed up with pride or arrogance or think that there's some reason that we're something special, Lord. We're simply your under-shepherds, your servants. We pray that you would exercise your leadership in this church through this body of elders, this team of elders that I'm so honored to be a part of. For your glory, not ours, and your fame, Jesus. And I pray this in your precious and holy name. All the people of God said, amen, amen. Well, again, let's thank God for his work in the lives of these men.